Fashion emergency hotline. Help, I've got major Black Friday FOMO. You don't have to miss out if you go to Old Navy. Old Navy? Yep. Skip the crowds and get 40% off your entire purchase in store. 40% off right now? That's right. And today, for one day only, all jeans for the family are 50% off. 50% off all jeans? I'm not scared of that. Thanks so much. Don't thank me. Thank Old Navy. Valid 1119. 40% off valid through 1122. In stores only. Excludes clearance, gift cards, register lane items, jewelry, and today only deals. Blog Talk Radio. Good evening, everybody, and thank you for joining us. Um, we've tried to give you a lot of um, shows in November. This month is, uh, you know, National Adoption Awareness Month, and um, we've had some, you know, really amazing guests. And I wanted to include, obviously, the side that kind of starts us all here from a mother's point of view, and uh, not only is this any regular mom, this is a mom that's uh, definitely – you know, been out there and um, fought the fight right alongside of adoptees and before probably adoptees were even fighting. So um, I'm thrilled to have my guest on tonight, and not only that, but uh, her recent and newest book out, which is called Hole in My Heart. Um, it's Lorraine Dusky, and I'm just going to read you a little intro of what Hole in My Heart is about, and uh, then we can find out more about the book. Uh, Hole in My Heart is the compelling story of a mother separated from her child by adoption in the 60s and the state-imposed secrecy that ke- that keeps them apart. Um, defying convention, Lorraine Dusky reunites with her daughter in the early 80s when such reunions were rare and in the process becomes a staunch advocate for reform of America's antiquated adoption system. Uh, welcome, Lorraine. I'm so glad to have you on tonight. Oh, I'm glad to be here, Pam. Well, I'll tell you, you know, I I got your book, I don't know, gosh, it's been three or so weeks ago, maybe a little longer, and, you know, I can't even, I can only read a little bit at a time, because, like, I see myself in in so much of, you know, your daughter, I mean, just the the push and the pull and, you know, the the fight or flight response that uh, we adoptees have, of course, you know, I think hers is on such an intense level, but... There's so much in this book. There's no way we can get through this in all this time. But um, I always ask, you know, what is the the main reason or the main thought behind, you know, doing this book for you? Well, uh, I mean, I wrote Birthmark in 1979, and it was uh, the first book, the first memoir from a birth mother that was published, and. Um, it ends, though, before I found her. It ends with a letter to her, you know, that I'm, me and my, my family and I are all waiting for her to come back. And I knew after I found her, the, well, the book came out in 79. I found her in 1981. And she always knew that I would write another book. I mean, it was discussed all through the years now and then. And but because the as the as you described the fight or flight relationship, I mean it was up and down. So it seemed to me that it was really time. Well, she died in 2007, as you know, and it seemed it. But I'd interviewed her before it for the book and everything. So it seemed I really had to kind of finish what I started. 
because in by the, when I published Birthmark in '79 with nobody else out there, I was on a lot of television. I took a lot of um, criticism. I was often pitted against adoption attorneys uh, who thought I was crazy, you know, and who said all kinds of you know bad things about me. I was called a slut. Um, so I, you know, it just seemed like so much had changed since then, and it was really time to tell the rest of the story. Yeah, that's. I mean, I, I I get that. I mean, there's. You probably could have put even more in this. I'm sure this is probably hard to narrow down what oh, you put I had, in. And I had yeah. to cut it down. I cut it down ten thousand words after I right. Uh, yeah, I guess that. So you know, maybe we can start out too. I mean, I know. Um, you know, not not having uh, everyone, you know, I don't know how many people have read Birthmark, but if we can go between there and then starting this book and you talking about, you know, advocacy, which, you know, that that's something, of course, that's near and dear to my heart. I have, you know, mm-hmm. not a quarter of the time in it as you, but for me, it started on this tiny little level in Indiana, you know, probably just out of high school, so that would have been 86, 87. So you were well into it by then, and and just knowing what you had to go up against, and you know, I think it's one point where you're getting ready to be, you know, interviewed, and uh, they want you to go up against uh, Bill Pierce, and you yeah. know, I, I wasn't around for those days. Thomas Atwood was the <laughs> was the leader when I came in, and you know, so that's I can only imagine what you felt at that moment because what I had felt for, you know that institution when he was leading it. So I don't know if you want to talk a little bit about, like, when you were ready to go on for that interview and how that, you know, all was playing out. I will tell you what happened. um, When the book came out, I I had a publicist, and she booked me on uh, Good Morning America, and it was just going to be a straight interview. And by then I had done done a number of interviews because I, I had already done the Today Show after I did a piece that was in Town and Country, oddly enough. I mean, I, I was an editor at Town and Country, and the uh, we did we were doing a section in the magazine on children today, mm-hmm. and I thought I was um, I was supposed to, I was in charge of the section, and I thought, well, rich people adopt, don't they? So I suggested that we do this piece on adoption, and then I would write it. And when I sat down to write it, I didn't know what I was going to say. I mean, I'd already written some pieces, but what about adoption? But what actually what just came out of my typewriter without sort of thinking about it was 10 years ago I had a daughter and I gave her up for adoption. And so the piece went from that, and that landed me on the Today Show. So And, and with Jane Pauley, and she was just a fabulous interview. She was not critical. She was just straight. She was sympathetic. And as I was leaving the, um, the set, somebody pulled me aside sort of into a curtain. like that was that, At least that's my mind because it was in my mind because this was so long ago and said I can't do what you you are doing but please keep doing it I had a son 12 years ago and I had to give him up and we never forget I don't know who the woman was but it just told me you know I could do this I could take the criticism and I was going to go forward so let's go back to birthmark so birthmark now has me on good morning America and I'm in my since I didn't live in the city, I was in a hotel room, and I was ordering dinner around 8.30 at night, and the phone rang, and the, the producer of the 
segments said, oh, you know, we think it'd be more interesting if you were on with Bill Pierce to kind of to present the other side of the story. And I thought to myself, wait a minute, there is no other side of the story. The records right. everywhere are sealed except Kansas and at that time Alabama had open records. And I thought, what, this is insane. I had a certain amount of PR experience because I worked at an agency for a while, and I knew that they were springing this on me so I wouldn't be think quick enough to say no. But I just did. I just clicked into gear, and I said, I'm not going on there to have an argument with this guy. And they don't have a segment if they just put him on. They can't use right. him without me, but they could interview me. And so I, I actually I'm feel very happy that I was able to say, no, you, I'll come on on another day if you're going to have him on. And that was the end of that. That was so smart, so, so smart. I mean, because like you said, I mean, anyone who's done any, you know, advocacy or has gone up against that, it's very tough to do because – we're immediately put on the defensive and they like to spring these things on us or change something or, you know, whatever it is and mm-hmm. make you really just be, you know, you have to be on your toes to to catch this. And even though I've not been on any program that big ever, I can only imagine in, in, in my world, just the little bit that's happened, you know, you feel it. Like I, I could just feel my heart beating fast reading that and thinking, you know, it takes a lot because we, you know, I know you guys as moms have gone through the name calling and how dare you, you know, and adoptees mm-hmm. kind of get this flack that how dare us, how dare we search, how, right. you know, dare right. we're not grateful and thankful and right. every other right. work we can think of. And so Adopt- I think that, yeah, yeah, well, that's what bonds us, I think, of- you know, we have that same um, experience. Oh, well, there's a huge bond. I think that's part of it, but you get the flack of, adoptees get the flack of you've got to be grateful of what, you know, isn't your family enough for you, and so you feel guilty. And we get the flack of you're disrupting a wonderful family, and she's better off without you. I mean, so we're just, you know, the, those happily those messages are are in retreat, I think, even though adoptees do grow up with a feeling of needing to be grateful all the time. I was talking to someone the other day, and uh, who said that when she hears somebody come up to her and say, and we, you know, we as mo- as a mother who's been out there, I hear this all the time. I have a, I know a cousin, my best friend, not my best friend, but usually there's somebody in the family that they know of that has never been interested, and I want to say to them, well, then it's the the adoptive parent's fault because at some point in that person's life, and it could have happened when they were very young, somebody made it clear to them that if you search for, quote, that other family or that other mother or that that woman, you are being disloyal to me and you are hurting me to the core. And therefore the adoptee immediately incorporates this message into their being and and acts as if adoption being adopted or coming from another family doesn't matter and it's sometimes very very hard to break out of that often adoptees wait too long they wait till their adoptive right. parents die and then it's, it's you know we all know this saying of a reunion with the grave and that is so sad it seems to it, it is so sad when that happens you know, I I've seen that happen um so much lately with us with you know, our records changing not till mm-hmm. twenty eighteen, which um, you know, is still a little bit away, but you've got this interest now. And it's it's funny because 
you know, we I've I've heard stories and and of course people I've helped and you know, they are they're finding graves because they're waiting until now. And mm-hmm. you know, for me it was a drive. I couldn't wait. I just couldn't wait at as soon as I could do it, I did it. Now, you know, I'm not you know downplaying anybody waiting because I really think I know each person has their own time frame and you know, mm-hmm. it happens supposed to for them. Um, but I always say, you know, listen, I'm going to give you advice, and, you know, you take it, you interpret it, you do what you want, but you don't have time. Time is not on your side. It's just not. Right, right. And no. a lot of male adoptees will wait. They'll wait until one or both of their adoptive parents are deceased. I mean, they will just hold out. And it's a it's a huge loyalty thing. They You know, they they believe that they just need to wait. And I wish I could, you know, Go up to him and shake him and say that's not what well, needs to this, happen. It doesn't. It's not this, lack of loyalty. Yeah, this this happened actually with a friend of my my husband's, who uh, found that he w- was adopted when he was twelve. When a cousin told him, and he asked his mother and she if he was adopted, and she said yes. And then it was never ever ever talked about again. So he uh, and on his father's deathbed. His father said to him, "Don't search for your other family because it will kill your mother." Okay, now that now this we're going back. He was adopted in the fifties, so he waits. He doesn't do anything. So I knew him before his father died. His mother had already died, as I recall. Anyway, so he, when his father does die, and some certain I don't know how much time passed, but fairly soon after that, he decided to ask all of his relatives if they knew, and they actually. His aunts actually knew who his mother and father were. I mean, oh, it was just, wow. and they were both deceased. So I, it's, it's. I yeah. tell the same thing all the time. Do not wait. And also, both sides get this advice. Adoptees get the advice that you're gonna, you know, this woman has forgotten you and gone on with her life, etc. And the, and the birth parents get the, the advice of like, oh, don't search because you're gonna destroy their, you know, this happy family. So we we get these messages from the world, and some of us, like you uh, and me, I guess, just said, screw it, you know, this isn't right. I'm gonna find. I'm going to find out about my daughter, and you were going to find out about your family, your original family. Right, right. Yeah, and I think sometimes there's this drive to know. And I know for me, had I waited, I mean, if I'd have waited till you know, around this time, mm-hmm. I would have found a grave. I mean, I, you know, I've lost mm-hmm. her um, four years ago. So, you know, there was this this drive to know, and I did fortunately, you know, have a 22, almost 23-year relationship with her. And mm-hmm. I can't imagine. I mean, my my kids, you know, are fortunate enough to have had, you know, many grandparents and to have enjoyed that. So I, you know, I'm very glad I made that choice. Um, you know, I, I know you talk a lot about, you know, about the relinquishment and, mm-hmm. you know, about wanting to look for your daughter early. And, mm-hmm. you know, I I can't imagine. I know my my adoptive brother died in a car accident so um mm-hmm. having lost him at 18 and i had also found his mother because i knew there's no way there's just absolutely no way i can ha- could have her out there not knowing you know what happened mm-hmm. at all that's not that's not an option um so i i did find her um i'm kind of wondering you know how did you feel when 
you know, you found her at so young. I mean, I do know because I've read it, but I mean, if you want to tell people how how it was to to locate her, you know, somewhat early, I guess, in the scheme of things, but really, you know, she's a teenager, so you know, it's a it's a hard, awkward time. Well, uh, yeah, because of because I, in a way, I felt after um, birthmark and after the articles and the publicity and everything, I felt sort of like the poster mom that I was supposed to be the really good birth mother or the really good woman out there, you know, who wasn't going to destroy your family. And um, so I was going to Alma meetings in New York, and Florence remains, Florence Fisher, who started Alma, remains a good friend of mine. And um, she had search sessions after the public part of the meeting, but you couldn't go to them unless your child was 18, and the adoptees who came couldn't go to them until they were 18 either. So I, you know, was going along. But at Alma, I did hear from other women that there was a, quote, searcher out there, and that for a a certain amount of money, and in in my case it was $1,200 in 1981, which actually was a lot more money in 1981 than it is today. And I could find her. And so actually I used some of the money from Birthmark um, and – well, I didn't. It wasn't that simple. I knew the searcher existed. I didn't know how he or she found, or I didn't know anything about it. And it wasn't until I I met my husband, and um, there was also a, a another marriage before that. Shortly after I gave up my daughter, well, two years later, I married somebody, and we were married for five years. But then I met my husband, and I was living. We were living out here in. Sag Harbor on Long Island, and he and his, especially his friends started it. He said, Dusky, you know, why are you waiting? This is killing you. You're not, she's 15. You're not going to go in and grab her. You don't, you know, you're not going to do anything. Right. You just need to know. And and my, Tony, my husband, said, he, kinda, he agreed with this guy. This was after dinner one night at, at our friend's house. It was a neighbor. And we, I thought, you know, Maybe, you know, I will. So I guess very soon after that, I called the, the person who who knew how to reach a searcher and said, yes, go ahead. And then I got married and we went on a honeymoon. And when I got back, there was a letter waiting for me saying that she had been found. It was the, the uh, it was just before Thanksgiving because I actually got the information of her name on the Saturday of Thanksgiving weekend. And um, I, I just... I don't know. I felt like the scales fell from my eyes, or I mean, I cannot. The feeling of knowing that I was going to be able to reach out to her was so enormous that it is actually hard to describe the relief I felt. So I got the information. I think on a Wednesday, or well, let me see. I got it probably on Friday. I don't know, but I know I got on Saturday was the day I phoned her, and when I got. I mean, it's a little complicated. You, I found out they found her. I had to go to New Jersey, pay the money. Then I had to come back and wait. And then I got a letter. Uh, then I got a phone call on that Saturday with her name and her and her phone number and everything. And I called uh, midweek. And I ultimately, although there was a funny a first phone call, but what I actually did is I called. I asked for her adoptive mother. And asked her if this was a good time to talk, and I said, my name is Lorraine Dusky, and 15 years ago, I had a, on April 5th, 1966, I had a daughter in Rochester, New York, and I think that that, that girl is Jane, that was the, the name, her name, and 
she said, you know, where are you calling from? What is your name and everything? And I thought, oh, my God, she's going to call the police. Mm-hmm. And, um, <laughs> but she said, I was afraid you were going to hang up. We had been we had been trying to find you. My daughter had epilepsy quite severely, and her d- doctor had already written to the adoption agency trying to find me, trying to find out any more medical health information. And I had been writing to the agency over the years, saying, how, asking how was my daughter. It felt like a spiritual or mystical thing. I guess I knew that she needed me, and she did. And I did not, you know, I I did not find her a minute too soon. Right, right, exactly. I don't. I don't think there's. There's really never too soon, is there? I mean, as far as I'm concerned, you could have found her earlier, and it still wouldn't have been too. Soon. You know, I mean, it was. That's right. I mean, I, I think it was a great earlier. time to find her. But you know, I mean, we des- we deserve to know. Um, you know, there's so many things um, along along through her life, which, of course, you know, you mentioned um, that that she has passed away. Um, mm-hmm. In between of that, you know, you're doing, you know advocacy too you're also you know you know doing things to keep things open which you know that that is a huge part of of who you are and I think it it continues to be that and one part in your you know in your book when I was reading it it almost made me sick because I couldn't believe you had said that 28 states in 1979 let bills die or they defeated them and I thought, are yeah. you kidding me? You know, <laughs> to think, you know, basically in almost 1980, those mm-hmm. states had that opportunity. And what did they do? They just threw it away. And yeah, I mean, the 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 time, the 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 money, the you know, emotions that could be saved from all those states having let us down like that. That that's insane to me. Yep. I mean, I just I can't that, yep. even imagine even being. I mean, we see it every time. We've seen, you know, we've seen Texas just go through this. You know, almost two years ago. Now they're going to come back, but you know, we just see it time and time again. And all it takes is one bad egg every time. It and used, it doesn't yeah, it used, doesn't need to right. be a whole slew of people. It's it can be one person. You know, it's often one. One person. That's the same. That's the case of here in New York. Well, in New York, I think we have a couple of bad eggs who uh, will will you know never change. <laughs> I mean, in in New Jersey, actually, the bill finally passed when the head of one of the of the assembly there retired, and then there was somebody new in. I mean, in, in legislatures can often have one extremely powerful person who can hold up a bill, even though there are enough uh votes to get it to pass it and that just happened over and over again in the 70s it was coming off the 60s and the 70s when there was openness and freedom and everything it seemed like we were going to get a lot of bills passed then but it just the adoption idea of adoption is is good period adoptive families do not want to be you know uh disturbed with and the power of the uh national adoption um NICFA, the National Council for Adoption and Bill Pierce. I mean they were a very strong uh group of adoptive parents who and agencies who just organized against us uh, and yeah. wrote letters and came out of the woodwork and didn't want their kids to know and 
that was the way it was going to be, and that's what happened then. And now it's oh, yeah. slowly happening now, but it's like every state is a huge fight. Oh, it is, for sure. I remember um, when I really had gotten into this, you know, deciding to, you know, um, you know, kind of delve into the legislative part, and I had watched Thomas Atwood talk, and I don't even know what it was in reference to now. It's been so long ago. But he says basically that, um, you know, we adoptees should be grateful. You know, we should be grateful yeah. for what we know. And and I thought, I mean, at the time, my husband had just gotten our, our computer. It was new. And mm-hmm. <laughs> I can remember contemplating taking the the screen and just tossing it out the window. I mean, I was that like, ah, I mean, just listening mm-hmm. to the words you know, coming out of his mouth, I thought, are you kidding me? But, you know, I, we are. We're slowly making that change. And, you know, um, the funny thing is, and, and even in Indiana, we have even some younger people, you know, around, you know, the governor and things like that at the time. And they, they even if it being young, they, they didn't know anything. So it's kind of this, you know, catch-22. It really doesn't matter because either they're older and they're set in their ways or they're young and they have absolutely no clue, you know, so it's I know, well, it's, fight. It is, it's actually been hard in many cases, I mean, some, to get publicity. Um, I mean, there's two things that go on. I mean, there I can, we have to acknowledge that there are both adoptees who don't want to search or who are going to wait. We've already talked about sure. them until their parents die and they don't want to talk about it, and they don't let anybody in the family know that they're curious because they have been schooled to be quiet, okay, to be a sure. good adoptee. And then we have, there are a lot of mothers who are have not told their husbands and their families and and also don't want to have their lives, quote, disrupted. And so it's so they're, they're while the the absolute moral right is on the side of opening up all the records, there is no good. Re- there is no reason in the world is, that it, the records to adopted people should be be sealed. I mean, in my perfect world, the birth mothers also can find out what happened to their child and who and where they went. But sure. let's start with the adopted person because it's. I, I have always known who I was. I have always known who my parents are, even though I had this brief moment in time when I was five and I thought my mother was probably not my mother but my father certainly was I mean I was daddy's girls and my mother probably had done something I didn't like (laughs) (laughs) but really I always knew so so to to have in there's no moral equation that there can relate to to the wrong that is done to adopted people by telling them you can't know and you can't find out and it's disloyal to your parents and so because of that you don't have adoptees writing letters Letters and in the newspaper, like they they could be or should be, you don't have them letting know in their families. And so, I mean, we've met. I've met a legislator who said his sister had given up a child, and he was. She never talked about it, and therefore he didn't think she wanted to know, and he was not going to vote for this bill. I mean, so so mothers don't talk about it. It's this taboo subject. Because of all this, we don't get the press that we should be getting. I mean, in, I, sometimes right. I think the only thing that was is going to happen in New York if a thousand adoptees 
stormed and broke into where the records are, literally, and had and and you know blood on the steps like a Vietnam demonstration. It, it's not going to happen because of of the the situation, but something like that would get in the paper, and that's what happens when you say the young legislators don't know anything about this. You want to? I'm sure you want to scream. I want to scream. Like, what have I? How long have I been beating my head uh, against the wall about this? Right. Without you know, um, you know, <clears throat> an impact. I was wondering. I mean, I know during this, I'm I'm sure you know. How did how did Jane feel about it? How did your daughter feel? Um, you know about you know advocacy and and adoptees getting this, and obviously you, you know finding her at a young age. But you know, did she have any feeling about it one way or the other? She was. I was the advocate and the the you know the person making the noise. I mean, when I first found her, we actually did some TV shows together, which she enjoyed because she had um, grand mal seizures and things like that, and she was also in some learning disabled classes, and so and she was the odd kid who had to wear a hockey helmet to school when she was in the second grade because she so she when she fell down she wouldn't hurt herself if she had a seizure at school. So right. the my coming into the situation and not being somebody in a mental institution or something gave her a new attitude about herself and so she mm-hmm. actually wanted wanted to do some publicity and enjoyed it. I mean because she could be seen as kind of a, a like a little star in her own right. She wasn't just this strange you know, kid in, in learning in in LD classes, which is odd because those those are my initials. I didn't even know what they were at the time. Right, but, right. So, but she wasn't going to be an advocate the the way I I was. And as you know, since you've read the book, she also gave up a daughter for adoption. And right. um, I tried to just dis- I tried to discourage I tried to stop it because the father wanted to uh, raise the child with his mother. But she would have none of it, and I mean, and, you know, I I have at my blog. I mean, I write about these cases at First Mother Forum against the the mother basically because if a natural parent wants to raise a child and the mother is not the one who can do it, the father absolutely should have the right to to raise that child. And so I'm always, you know, fighting for the natural parent to raise the child because, except in any in some extreme case. The child is always better off growing up with people of who he will be the most like. Well, and you know, so, the fact that she did relinquish—I mean, that is—that mm-hmm. is so common. I mean, I can't tell you how many adoptees that are also, you know, first moms. I mean, that oh, that it, is yes. so. Com- I don't. I don't know what the statistics, you know, are, it, and if anyone. Actually, it's in the book. It's, and this statistic just blew me away. Adoptees are seven times more likely than the general population to give up a child for adoption. Seven times. I think two things go on there. I think there is kind of an innate need to repeat history. And mm-hmm. the, my other feeling is that the adoptive parents who may love the child you know, that they raise do not want if there if it's a situation where there's no marriage and you know stuff like that, they don't want a grandchild who doesn't look, act, or think like them, and they've felt that with the adopted person, 
that there's there's so much difference and now there's going to be another child that's going to be partly their responsible responsibility and they don't want to help so they right. kind of they encourage the adoption so there's these two things going on i find it so incredibly sad and the first time i heard it, about it was when i was um testifying for four adoptees who were trying to get their um their records unsealed in new jersey and I, when i went into the ladies room at the courthouse, one of the women was just bawling, and I, I, you know, I thought, well, something's going on here, and I asked her, and she told me that she'd also had a child. She gave it for adoption, and I, I, I thought it was rare, but just like you said, it's extremely common. And, right. Uh, you know. Yeah, I, I mean, I, and I understand that. You know, I mean, I know the the seven times greater. I wonder if we had those statistics in a in an actual percentage of, you know, what were the pregnancies, you know. Did you know how many adoptees went on to either you know get pregnant and then pregnant and then relinquish? I mean, I bet there's there's so many studies. You know, I've started to do some surveys, and mm-hmm. they've they've I did some very light ones the the first couple around, um, but you know the next few I'm going to you know it, they're all anonymous, but I'm going to try to ask you know a little more personal questions and. And people can answer them because obviously there's no name tied to it. But I'd like to know. I mean, you know, um, it happened to me. I mean, I I, I got pregnant um, my senior year mm-hmm. in, in high school, um, but I had a miscarriage, so mm-hmm. I was very close to that point. And you know, it could have been me. And I wonder, you know, it does. We it's almost like our brain wants to repeat that that history. Yeah. And, you know, That's with yeah, and you know, you and I were talking a little bit about in the beginning with, you know, Jane with withdrawing and time, and I see this happen so many times, and I, I can't say to people enough when they're getting ready to search, and they're getting ready to go into reunion, to please, please read, and and do some homework, because then that makes this reunion last, or it gives it, you know, a better chance. Otherwise, you know, they're lost going into it. There's no rule book, and, mm-hmm. you know, we need all the help we can get. Mm-hmm. And what what happens to the the mother is that she's um, she kind of is coming apart at the seams. The adoptee it has their own their own emotional roiling like why was i given up why what would my life have been like uh, i look like you i act like you this is you know how, what uh, they're kind of in this weird place and the mother apparently and i know i certainly was you are faced with all the emotions of of the time of relinquishment all over again you are that weak person back in the hospital unable to stop what is going ahead even though every fiber of your being is saying keep your baby raise your baby nourish your baby and yet the forces of society and the shame involved and the the absent you know everything and you you everything you're going against everything you feel you should be doing and all of those feelings all of that hurt all of that weakness all of that lack of of power that you felt and the the terrible sorrow you felt comes rushing forward at the same time you are so thrilled to be reunited with with your child 
you know, but at the same time, the pain is just is overwhelming. And I think that that's how a lot of reunions go wrong. The, the, the mother has to accept the fact that she cannot lay this pain on the mm. adopted person because the adopted person has been saying, geez, I've had to take care of my adoptive family for so long, protect them from how I really feel and be responsible for keeping them happy. And now I've got somebody else <laughs> I've got to deal with, and it becomes overwhelming. At the same time, the adoptee should be as understanding as they can. I mean, we are talking about this a little bit before about, you know, I mean, I know these stupid arguments raise up like whose pain is greater nobody's pain is greater there each of us have our own pain and each of us are involved in this institution of adoption and we need to be accepting and and try and do our best to heal the other person without diminishing our own feelings the adoptee does not have to be responsible for the mother's pain and the mother shouldn't be laying it on on the adoptee but at the same time the adoptee should have a certain amount of understanding of how painful reunion can be at the same time you're just i was i mean so elated for me i don't think i think the the coming apart of the scenes came came after um I returned home from meeting my daughter. I don't think it really happened when I was there. I was just so thrilled to see her. Right, right. Be with her. Yeah, because, and I think in the moment, you know, we always talk about when there's that honeymoon time and everyone Mm -hmm. is is so excited and so glad in most cases. Mm -hmm. And, Mm -hmm. you know, afterwards, you know, we think it's going to be that high, that, that greatness all the time. Well, no relationship is like that, you know. Right. So it does to settle in and given this certain situation sometimes boundaries have to be set i mean it it's not all the same so you know making your way through whatever it is it's just like parenting you know there's no rule book so we all have to adjust to what you know fits in and what works you know for each individual do you think um i know with with jane's epilepsy it really affected a lot of things um Mm -hmm in her life and you know i i can't imagine having you know a medical need that you know changes how you feel about things and how you know you may view things i mean she she may not have felt well and you know that certainly can have helped process you know everything in the in the best way possible did you see that that sort of struggle with her do you think that was you know that affected it uh, actually, no, I don't think it was the epilepsy. I mean, the epilepsy had, and and the seizures and the drugs she took to control the seizures really had their own, um, their own, created their own neuroses of feeling like the other and feeling different. And, and, and I think, you know, if you study epilepsy and, and the effect of it on people, they're always, you know, since at any moment something could happen, it's difficult for them to relate to people often in the same way that that others do because they feel so weird and she had this it was so bad when she was young i mean just think just think if you were in the second grade and wore a hockey helmet to school and big boys came by and rapped on it like this right that's what they did and so that created its own issue i mean i think the when she wasn't facing the epilepsy and actually i i only 
saw, I think, one brief seizure that was one of those a petty mall or, or what they call now an absence seizure where where she just seemed to be gone for a couple of seconds and then came back and there was almost no um almost no break in anything that was going on um or not really i mean it was just a couple of seconds of her being absent it seems like in our own relationship i think that she just exemplified the conflicts that adoptees feel the push pull when she said to me it's, i feel like a magnet you know the closer i get to one side the more i that would be me or her other mother the more i have to pull away from the other and the the i have heard about some really good open adoptions and all the but I would say that mine wasn't bad, but it wasn't great because although she spent, she began spending summers with us at, um, and spent actually a lot of time here and had a job in town and you know came back you know summer after summer. Her adoptive mother, I think, always felt that I was just going to fade away from view at some point, and then when that didn't happen, she began to dislike me a great deal. And one mm-hmm. of the, uh, so, so she would one of the worst things she could say to Jane was you're just like Lorraine. I mean, I, you know. So I knew that there would be some, there must have been some pretty awful things that were said about me. Um, I mean, we were she was okay, more of a, a homemaker, and so Jane was torn between these two things. And and the other thing is that with Jane, I always felt like I was always on trial that she was always looking for something for quite a while for me to do one thing wrong so she could reject me. And sure. I think that was just, that was, well, sure. So you understand what I'm talking about. Yep. And so yep. you, you feel like I, you I was always walking, uh, you know, on eggshells. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, but that's when they're, when, and I, and I don't want to, you know, speak out against her, you know, adoptive mm-hmm. mom having not known her, but, Mm-hmm. No, hearing that reaction leads me to believe that she was being pushed in that direction. So it was it was great and it was safe for her then to push you away because then that yeah. made it look like, well, you know what, I'm not I'm not really sure I, I you know I love Lorraine or that I need to be around her because I can push her away at any given time, you know, and right. and she's probably making it a or was making it a you know, a well-known fact that she was doing that, you know, because she may have received some type of praise or some type of positive reinforcement for having done that. You know, um, it is a really, yeah, I mean, it's a difficult position. (laughs) Yeah, I I mean, I, I don't know, I don't know how, you know, again, how she was, you know, feeling or, or what she was going through, but I can't, I can't see that there's not something on that other side that's, like you said, like a magnet that's definitely pulling her in both directions. You know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. it's it's definitely yeah, not a not an easy situation. The greatest gift I think adoptive parents could give their their child, other than the love and the you know raising them and everything, is to to not make it be a contest between the two mothers, and try to you know, accept and love both of us. I mean, it was, I mean, uh, there were, I just saw something on Facebook about uh, some adoptee was saying um, her birth mother wants to call her to call her mom and she doesn't feel comfortable. And I thought, oh, man, I should. I wish I could reach out to this this other woman, this mother, and say, lighten up. Let the adoptee call her, you know, not call you mom. I mean, 
and the Jane called me Lorraine pretty much all the time. But in after many years, she used to, if we when we wrote, she began writing Dear Mother and signing Your Daughter. And then she would sometimes when she was still young doing this, she would then say add like Please don't tell Mom I said that. <laughs> so, wow! So, wow! So yeah, that's you know, I know that she was getting that kind of feedback, that it was just right. great when, if she was pushing me away. And at the same time, though, they were kind of conflicted because as, having Red Hole in my heart, you know that I kind of I visited, I went back and forth. They were open towards me, the father especially, but he wasn't so conflicted because I, I he wasn't the I wasn't the father. I mean, so they they had a hard time too dealing with it, and they certainly weren't prepared for this. This it was all they were, you know, their their closed adoption and went to an open adoption the minute I made that phone call. Right, right. Well, and I think there is that such a fear. Um, you know, I I don't understand. I mean, you know, I I did this little children's book, and how good it is, I don't know. But my point was to say and to give this voice because I just feel like. You know, we're not able to share this. You know, we're not able, you know, to say these things. And, and, you know, I don't think that, especially adoptive parents during, you know, Jane's age and my parents' age were given um, any kind of tools to say, this is what, you know, this is how things should happen. This is kind of a guideline. Of course, you know, you're going to have to adjust it for each child in each circumstance. But instead, they, you know, give them a baby. They say, okay, go ahead and and blend everything. Don't act like there's something different. You know, act like they're part of the family. And in doing so, then we get lost. So, you know, they were doing what they thought was the best, and it was really the worst. I mean, it was giving us no definition and no you know, ability, and I think one of the biggest examples, and I don't know, maybe Jane even talked about this, I don't know, but in school, and I hear adoptees say it all the time, of having to do a family tree. Mm-hmm. That's the mm-hmm. worst exercise possible. So, again, this extends into teachers, too, and, mm-hmm. you know, the staff and knowing that a child is adopted. Because if someone had said to me, you know, listen, you know, I know, I know you're adopted, and you know you do. I I don't know what I would have. My mouth probably would have hung open. Like what? You understand? You know I don't think anyone even knew. I don't even know how many people I knew when I graduated that knew I was adopted. I mean I didn't talk about it. You know. Um, mm-hmm. But it's just one of those things. I mean, and you know, I know reading through this and and Jane, you know, going on to get married and she had another daughter and mm-hmm. she, you know has you know raises her and you know did she did she like being a parent do you feel like do you feel like that there was this connection and you could see it you know when she i think at that time she had uh her epilepsy somewhat ruled her life more than the adoption did and it was difficult for her to actually manage a job a child, a husband, you know. I mean, with when she she, she did much better when she was married because she really the second marriage was really she was, was the great guy. But mm-hmm. um, she, I don't know. I think she she was psychologically. Uh, I don't. 
want to say the word damaged, but she was psychologically, she wasn't, you know, a lo- she was she had a hard time spending enough attention on her daughter. And um, I, you know, I, I mean, I just know that that's true, and that my granddaughter would say that if she were here. You know, there is something here I'd like to leave to read because it was it goes back to what we were talking about. Because one of the things that I said earlier that I knew that. Um, Jane knew always knew that I was going to be writing another book, a, a follow-up to Birthmark. And so at one point I interviewed her quite extensively when I was visiting her at her adoptive parents' house in Wisconsin. But there's a section here that adoptees have always commented on. And, and I'd like – it's just a couple of paragraphs, and I'd like to read it. Is that, is that all right? Sure, sure. Okay. Here's um, It was late at night, and she was having a cigarette, which is something she did, and her, her natural father smoked also. Anyway, here's what one of the things she said. I knew that I belonged with my family. Now, she's, she's talking here about her adoptive family. But there was a feeling that I belonged somewhere else. It wasn't actually belonging somewhere else. It was I needed to know for a certain completeness inside of me. And if I didn't know, I wouldn't feel whole. I wouldn't have felt I belonged with you either, and that's me. So it wasn't actually belonging. It was completeness. I was this circle, and it was broken. I had this. She held up her hands, forming an arc, but I didn't have this. And she moved her hands to close the circle, to connect the arc, to make it whole. So I felt like a part of me had been moving along, and all of a sudden, boom, and I'm supposed to go along like this isn't happening. Like one day I'm this person, and the next day I was somebody else. But I still had this other person somewhere inside of me. Imagine you have an ancestor who was just yanked away, and you were supposed to keep on walking like nothing happened. But I kept looking backwards, the way an owl can turn its head all the way around, you know. And so I'm saying, so where is she? She stops now. Her parents are far away. Damn it, she's going to have that smoke in the house. The smell will be gone when they get back, and I'm not going to stop her. A minute later, she picks up the thread. I always felt like I was walking on a fence and could fall off at any moment. So, wow. you know, I mean, you know, it was pretty powerful to do this interview because most of the time when we were together and we were together a lot as you know from the book, we didn't, you know, it wasn't you don't talk about being adopted, you just live, you go shopping, you sure. you know, you have dinner, you just you go to the beach where we live. I mean, you just live just like, you know, two parents. Right. The one thing that was inter- interesting was how much we were actually alike, even though I hadn't raised her. I mean, well, we looked alike. I could wear, she could, we could wear each other's clothes, and we did. Um, we all, we just sort of liked the same style, which is kind of tailored. And uh, if you saw us, together for lunch or for dinner or for a week and you didn't know that she had been adopted and raised by two other people you would never imagine that she was i mean right you know just i don't did you feel that way when you worked with your mother you know i did um Mm -hmm. and it's funny because i have two sisters um by my mom Mm -hmm. also and um there's a really strong familiarity and we all Mm -hmm. We all wear the same size shoe, all three of us. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, um, we're all built a little different, but, I mean, there's so many similarities. And 
we all three got so much from her. I'm, I have a different father than my than my sisters mm-hmm. do, but even at that, we still got so much from my mom's side of the family, you know, that there's all this familiarity with us. And, you know, it's so funny because, you know, we could just be together. And I wish, I so wish, because my mom obviously – you know, she did a little bit of um, helping me help some friends do some some searching for their parents. Um, but mostly she wrote a letter in the beginning. It was, I don't know, four or five pages. Basically, I think she just wanted to get it out, and she wanted to say, you know, listen, you know, I didn't. I can honestly say that I don't know that I thought of you every day, but I thought of you a lot. Um, mm-hmm. Described, you know, um, at that time she went back, Uh, with me to the agency and she actually like had me on her lap I mean that's the (laughs) hospital didn't know that I was being relinquished and so you know and I've since lost that letter which infuriates me Um, yeah yeah, I but I have it memorized pretty much so it's in my head Um, but you know just reading that but that was it that was it and there was really no more talking about it. It was time to move on. It was time to go forward, mm-hmm. at least mm-hmm. in her mind. And that is mm-hmm. so not how I am. You know, did I want to talk about it every time? No. But I I needed her to do some of that little, you know, reflective thinking or talking. Or it's, I mean, I'm glad you got to ask her those questions because I think it's so important because, you know, I never got asked that. And nor did I get to ask her things that she could sit down and give me in-depth answers to. And I so wish now I had done that, you know, even maybe in her last, you know, days, just, you know, Mm -hmm. said, okay, listen, you know, who knows, though? She was so strong and so stubborn and so determined. Who knows? She may have not even wanted to have done that. But it's gut-wrenching. I mean, it's, you know, you think that time is lost and gone, but... You know, at least I can say that she did write that letter and she did, you know, sit down and mm-hmm. and put those thoughts into paper and, you know, get it all out there. And that was it. That was that, that was the end of the story for her. And um, I probably could have talked about it, not every time, not every day, but I'm sure there are many more things that we, even my sisters could have learned about my mom that, you know, that they had no clue about, um, mm-hmm. you know, that time frame and you know, just the lost, the lost time for, for all of us. Um, right. But anyway, yeah, I just, I can't, we, there's so much familiarity between even us girls. And I remember um, right after I found my mom, she turned around and said something kind of, not yelling, but kind of like what, and her tone, her mannerisms, it was me. Like it was actually me. And I thought like, and I hadn't even known her, but maybe you know, a month or so. So it wasn't like, you know, something I could have picked up and it was just right. amazing. There's, so, there's you know, so um, yeah, yeah. It's just there's, nuts. But, you know, I think, I think you've done so much for adoption reform and, you know, you've done so much for, for us as adoptees. And, you know, for that, I, I really do say thank you because, you know, somebody somebody had to be out there, you know, sticking their neck out to start this. And, you know, I wondered if you have any, any thoughts. You know, what do you see coming up in, in the, the states that are trying to do, you know, adoption reform or, you well, know. Well, it is, 
it is and happening. It, I mean, it's now, I think it's 20 or 21 states, and with Pennsylvania, maybe 21, that have basically some kind of legislation that allows uh, most adoptees to get their records. But this idea of the states, there's so many states that are in love with this damn veto that they think that, that mothers should have the right to say no. I totally disagree with that. I don't denigrate the states in which they have to deal with it because it's either that or nothing. And in legislation, not everything happens in some perfect sense. I mean, the, um, the it, it takes push and pull. And if it is the if if a veto is the only thing that can happen, I think it's better to have it and then try to go back and and say, look, the world, the sky didn't fall, the world didn't fall apart. Yeah. Let's give these other adoptees who, you know, the right to know who who they are. I mean, it's not fair. It is not right. So I see, you know, what didn't happen in the 70s is happening now slowly, slowly, slowly as adoptions are becoming more open. Um, you know, but it would be great if, if, if all the states could just kind of go boom and be open because adoptees are going to – how many more adoptees are going to die without knowing who their what their right. who their ancestors are, who their mother is, without – just because some legislator is sitting there, you know, with his thumb up his – is Fanny right. not <laughs> seeing what needs to ha you know what what is the right thing to do, and right. I you know so it will happen and it will happen slowly, and I, when I wrote Birthmark and now with Hole in My Heart and trying to publicize that and getting it out there and you know if I could make every legislator sit down and read for instance the sections of the book that are that are just straight journalism about what sealed records do and what's wrong with them i i would you know i would gladly tie them all to the chair but right. you know we do what we can podcasts like this does good because somebody listening tonight will start a search that that they weren't going to start that sure. they've been sitting on you know so every time you you talk about this in or in, in any form you you continue the movement right you know, it's all, right. I it's agree. all part of a piece well, I definitely want to make sure we can tell people, you know, where can they find, um, you know, not only Hole in My Heart, but Birthmark and, you know, uh, where where can people go to find? Um, well, both of them are both of them are easily available uh, through Barnes and Nobles and Amazon. You can just click on, you know, go to just Google or not, or just go to Amazon and put in Hole in My Heart, and it will pop up or put in my last name Dusky. Um, and and there it is, and it's you know it's got a lot of reviews, and a lot. I'm, I'm particularly happy when I there's a review from a therapist who said he had no idea about any of this stuff, and that all the therapists should read this. So right, great, I, and, and I agree. And then reviews. you have, yeah, you have a blog too. You want to tell people, yes. you know? Yes, I I write um, at First Mother Forum. I write with another mother from this. Uh, Jane Edwards and we started the blog in 2007 and uh, 2008 I did not start the blog until after my daughter died I really felt I had to do more writing and I had to reach more people and so I started right. that and I've kept it going and I we, we blog about two or three times a week or we try to so well, that's yeah, that, that, and that reaches a lot of people. A lot of adoptees read it. Um, I believe we have it on our site too. Um, 
you know, so first of all, I just want to thank you for being on and, and thank you for writing the book because, you know, I hope people will go out and get it because there's so much in this that we could literally talk for another hour or two, whatever, and, and really get into so much more. So I hope people will go to Amazon and, and you know, get a copy. And also, you know, I want everybody to know um, you can find um, most of this information on Indiana adoptinetwork.org and that's mm-hmm. our website um, that is our name we have changed it and again it's indiana adoptinetwork.org we are doing a conference in april of 2017 which we're really excited about it's going to be hopefully so amazing and um, this is for everybody not just indiana adoptees this is for uh, adoptees, first moms, social workers, everyone. And so please go over and take a look at the website. And thanks again, Lorraine, for being on. I really appreciate it. And um, as usual, everybody, blue skies and green lights until next time. Thanks for joining us. Until next time. Thank you. Thank you, Pam. Bye. Bye. Fashion Emergency Hotline. Help, I've got major Black Friday FOMO. You don't have to miss out if you go to Old Navy. Old Navy? Yep. Skip the crowds and get 40% off your entire purchase in store. 40% off right now? That's right. And today, for one day only, all jeans for the family are 50% off. 50% off all jeans? I'm not scared of that. Thanks so much. Don't thank me. Thank Old Navy. Valid 1119. 40% off valid through 1122. In stores only. Excludes clearance, gift cards, register lane items, jewelry, and today only deals. Fashion Emergency Hotline. Help, I've got major Black Friday FOMO. You don't have to miss out if you go to Old Navy. Old Navy? Yep. Skip the crowds and get 40% off your entire purchase in store. 40% off right now? That's right. And today, for one day only, all jeans for the family are 50% off. 50% off all jeans? I'm not scared of that. Thanks so much. Don't thank me. Thank Old Navy. Valid 1119. 40% off valid through 1122. In stores only. Excludes clearance, gift cards, register lane items, jewelry, and today only deals.